as we have studied lately, dear Lord, in the scriptures that you have blessed us with to have and record in front of us, we beheld the power of our Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 27, even in his death, he was indeed Lord. He proved as much when he darkened the sun at this moment and it refused to shine, that ominous sign that this act of judgment was taking place before the eyes of the onlookers. Blind to the reality, they, de- they mocked and derided Him as the elders and priests gathered around, saying, If you are truly the Christ, come down from there. And while you hung, you cried out. The rocks were split, the earth shook, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and saints who had fallen asleep in the depths of the earth heard the sound of your great name and came forth from the bowels of Sheol, and preached the gospel to those who resided in Jerusalem, the city upon which you had set your favor. The centurion and his soldiers confessed, Truly, this was the Son of God. And the women then witnessed your resurrection in three short days. And we beheld you, the Great Commission, as we behold your words recorded, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to our Lord Jesus Christ. And He has commissioned us to go forth and teach all that You have commanded. And You are with us always to the ends of the earth. This is the power of our great God and we have partaken, we have witnessed and we have experienced it in our own souls, those who confess to the regenerating power of the indwelling Spirit of God in this place. And so with hearts ablaze, with thankfulness for the grace, unmerited favor shed abroad upon us, We now turn our attention to your holy word, asking that the Spirit would open up our hearts and minds to love and understand what is therein contained, and let us value the incalculable riches of your wisdom so that we might share with others the gold of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a privilege and what a grace it is that God has given us this morning to gather together and to behold Him speaking to us through His immutable Word. Turn with me in your scriptures, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. And our communion series brings us to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. Hebrews 11, 17 through 26. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the proclamation of God's Word. The title of this morning's sermon is Cradle to Grave Faith. Cradle to Grave Faith. The title reflects that in the examples of the saints who've gone before, recorded for us in Hebrews, whose testimony is there to teach and encourage us what it means to look to Christ, we have examples of faith in every circumstance of life, the broad range from birth even to death. So stand with me with your Bible open if you're able. And let us, out of reverence, behold the Word of God. Listen to me as I declare from Hebrews 11. Again, verses 17 through 26. The holy, infallible Word of Christ. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Verse 20. 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Cradle to grave faith. You'll notice in this record we have examples of faith evidenced in every life, virtually every life circumstance or a range at least of life circumstances. Faith confessed at death. Faith, faith confessed at a birth. And faith confessed at a coming of age experience. Cradle to grave faith is featured in our text today in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 26. Therefore, the aim of this message is as follows. May the Holy Spirit inspire in us the faith modeled by saints of old in every stage of life, cradle to grave. Again, may the Holy Spirit inspire in us the faith modeled by saints of old in every stage of life as we, like Moses, look to Christ. He looked to Christ to come. We look to Christ who has come and will come again. And so as we see in these examples how to do so under pressure and in all stages of life, we are encouraged, emboldened, and by this means may the Holy Spirit quicken your faith and mine if you confess Him with me this morning. If you do not know Christ, may this message draw you unto repentance and faith and the only one who can save us from our sins. Our working summary of faith, gleaned from this great chapter in Hebrews 11, is as follows. Some of you will recall. Faith is, summary form, believing in and acting on the promises and power of God. Quite simply, believing in and acting on the promises and the power of God. This is faith evidenced in Hebrews 11 by these examples. In light of these examples featured for us in the sections of Hebrews 11, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, and Moses himself, let us consider our own lives. Listen to this question closely. Do we as Christians affirm God's covenantal promises reaching far beyond our own lifespan? Do you, as a believer... Do you, saint in this room, do you affirm God's covenantal promises reaching far beyond your own lifespan, that which you can experience in this life, that which is a blessing to you and your tangible everyday interaction with life's affairs? And and therefore, the next question arises, do we show as much by our decisions and lifestyle at all stages, from birth even to death? Do we show as much, that is, do we demonstrate that we live according to a faith in something much bigger than ourselves. We not only have a faith in a gospel that changes us, affects us, and is a great immeasurable blessing to us, but we live by faith in a gospel that is much, much 
bigger than us. Far greater than the mere individualistic experience of an individual, this gospel, the true gospel is, in fact, and the text demonstrates as much to us today as does the counsel of all Scripture. The author of Hebrews reminds us with Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, quote, now these things took place as examples for us, quote. Paul says that the things of old took place as an example for us, and that context is more to the negative. Don't complain like the followers of Moses did in the wilderness. In the case of Hebrews 11, it's to the positive. In other words, the evidence of faith in the hearts of these saints was recorded as examples for us to see what cradle-to-grave faith really looks like. We live in light of God's promises that are much bigger than us, but by His grace include us. What evidence do we see in the lives and deaths of the saints of old as they look to Christ so long ago? Hebrews 11 is a compendium answering that question. In considering their example of faithfulness, may we turn and look to Christ today regardless of the stage of life we presently face and its challenges, its anguish, its trials, perhaps, perhaps its blessings and overflowing joys. May we look to the examples of what we've read here this morning and in faithfulness then turn to Christ today, trusting regardless of the stage of life and its attending trials we find ourselves in, that His grace is sufficient. Here's a heading. Let us consider this morning faith modeled in three ways. Number one, faith modeled in death, the death of the saints of old. Secondly, faith modeled in birth. Specifically, we'll look to the birth of Moses. And thirdly, faith modeled by coming of age, the coming of age of Moses in the text. First of all, faith modeled in death. Look in our text. We see a record of the deaths, in fact, or death experiences of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and there's many more. In fact, let's read again verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He was offering up Isaac, though God stayed his hand, even unto death. This was, if you will, a near-death experience for which faith stirred Abraham in obedience and to endure. It was said of him, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That was the promise, but he had to believe that that promise was bigger than himself. And listen, that promise was bigger than death, even the death of his son. The promise, the Word of God, transcends the worst of circumstances, the worst of enemies, even death itself. Verse 19, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Again, the theme of death, speaking of his son Isaac, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Then we move to Isaac, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. But when did he do this? Right before his death. By faith, listen, Jacob, verse 21, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And again, Joseph, verse 22, by faith, at the end of his life, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and listen, gave directions concerning his bones. His remains he wanted deposited in the place of promise. And so we see by these examples, faith modeled in death. First of all, let us consider the most common circumstance of life in Hebrews 11, where the metal, the strength of true faith is tested, that is featured here, is death itself. More examples as I count in Hebrews 11 of death, 
to test the metal and to demonstrate the substance of our faith. And in addition to that, deep anguish and trial are shared as the experience of the saints have gone before to demonstrate the reality, the foundation, the foundational power, the strength, the undying character of true biblical faith. Think of what Paul tells us in other places. We are pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. Paul says, despite the frailty of our flesh, despite our ever-present, in this life, mortality, like a jar of clay, nevertheless, what's inside? Gold, in fact, that never perishes. We bear our faith, as it were, as gold in treasures, and as treasure in vessels made of clay. Think of the analogy. The vessel breaks, but what is seen? The faith inside. Sometimes in the diff, most difficult and trying of life circumstances, faith is most evident. Faith is modeled in the deepest of valleys, in the most incessant and difficult of trials, even at death's door. For believers who truly trust in Him, these are in fact providential moments where the strongest testimony to the power of the gospel is evident in their confession and their obedience, their experience. Example of Joseph's faith, think of this, uh, all of the examples in the life of Joseph where his faith was sustained. Joseph was sold into slavery, he was a prisoner, he was in jail after being falsely accused. For years and years, on end, Joseph experienced the short end of life's stick, if you will, suffering, unjust accusation, imprisonment, slavery, trial, abuse. But none of these are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Only one thing of Joseph's, Joseph's experience is instructions for where his bones ought to be placed. That was the most powerful example cited of Joseph's faith in our text today. The faith that Joseph represented in, placing his and in giving instructions that his bones be placed where God's promises will come to pass. Think of three aspects of faith evident in death. Number one in our text today, resurrection. Number two, lineage. Number three, as I mentioned briefly, burial accommodations. These three are in the text today. That is, faith is modeled in death, and we see three aspects of faith in death that are evident. First, resurrection, faith in resurrection. Second, lineage. Third, burial accommodations. First of all, resurrection. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested again in verse 17, offered up Isaac. And think of that moment again with me, if you will. It was a journey, there was a journey involved up this precipice, up this mountain. <clears throat> we see the picture. An elderly father, his only treasured son, in whom is invested the covenant, the tangible evidence of God's covenant, that he would have a forever lineage too many to count. If this one dies, so does the promise. Your natural mind would tell you. The, the burden upon Isaac's back, the wood of the sacrifice, and the journey up this hill. Uh, Philip and I were in Phoenix last week, and we climbed a mountain. as a kind of a short one. And at first I was ambitious, and you know, Phil's a little younger than me, and I'm kind of getting to that age where I kind of need to show the younger guys that I still got it. So I'm charging up that mountain, taking two steps at a time. For about the first third, I start to breathe really heavy. And I think to myself, if my allergies act up, I ain't getting to the top. And by the time we finally got there, I was breathing really heavy. 
I was able to make it, but it was not with a, little, a fair bit of trial, physically speaking. And suddenly it hit me. Hard, climbing a mountain is hard enough as it is, just with your own physical strength. Imagine the crushing psychological burden that when you arrive at the summit, you will sacrifice your only beloved, promised, lineage son. How did Abraham do it? How did Abraham climb that mountain? The answer is in our text, verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham could climb the mountain because he believed in resurrection. And metaphorically speaking, so it is with us. Any trial, any crushing weight and burden, psychological, physical, or otherwise, that mountain, as it were, can be climbed when God reveals to us that there is a reality of the power of the gospel that conquers death. And that reality is signed, sealed, and delivered in the historical truth that our first fruits, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, burst forth from the tomb three days after his crucifixion. Abraham had faith that this was true of God's future plans, and we have faith, as the Lord grants it as his precious gift, that it indeed took place, and so it will be our experience. This last week was a trying one for some of you. It was even a difficult one for me, as some of you know. Philip and I were preaching the gospel outside a place where lives are taken willfully and sinfully in murder. We were preaching the gospel outside of a place of death a so-called abortion clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. And the heaviness of the reality of death was all around us. And I cried out for those little ones. And I cried out as if they were my own children. And tears streamed down my face. And for a moment, I felt maybe just a little bit of the anguish and agony of being face to face with the death of a precious little one. And it was a powerful experience. Some of you know the pain of handing a little one to the hands of God before they touched your own hands or shortly after. The pain that I was feeling as we were preaching, crying out that those little ones would have a rescuer, and the pain of loss that we sometimes endure when even against everything that we would have and, and, and by no desire of our own. In fact, we want to treasure and hold those little ones, yet they are taken from us providentially by God's hand. The question comes, how can we bear it? How can we bear it? And I was thinking these thoughts this week because I know many of you are and have been in those shoes. And we bear it, the answer is, brothers and sisters, as Abraham did. Considering that God is able even to raise our little ones from the dead. They are in His hands. 
And there is coming a day at the final resurrection where the earth will, get, will break forth as a womb. So it says in John 5, and those who are there will rise. And so it is that faith modeled even in deep and profound loss preaches to the world a message of faith in resurrection. This is the faith of Abraham that he modeled even in the near-death experience of his own son. And this is the faith that God gives us. That death is not the final door of separation because Christ lives. Because Christ lives, death is overcome. The final enemy is conquered. Secondly, consider lineage. Faith affirms, here's a phrase for you, progressive multi-generationalism. What in the world does that mean? A fancy term I want to come up with, one of those ones that maybe are more confusing than helpful. But think of this. We have a lineage that is represented for us in the text. Abraham, his reference, his son Isaac. There's Jacob. There's Esau that are also mentioned. There's Joseph. And so we see, as, as we see over and over again in Scripture, a lineage. There is a progress, a progressive a means whereby God is unfolding His kingdom plan from one generation to the next. Isaac and Jacob, think of them. Both of them blind fathers in their, age, in, in their aging days. Blind, aging fathers. Each of them blessed their sons as they approached death. And a sovereign God acts by means of the instruction of the father. And Isaac blesses his sons. In Genesis 27, uh, verse 40, he says as a blessing or as a prophecy, a surprising one indeed to Esau, that the elder will serve the younger. And Jacob, through his conniving, receives the blessing of the firstborn. And though there are all these factors going on that include sin, nevertheless, God is sovereign over them. And in his... In, acting by means of these circumstances and the means of the instruction of the Father, the blessing is passed along from one generation to the next. And so Jacob receives it. Jacob then, an aging father, once again blind, receives Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, by him for a blessing in Genesis 48, 14. And what does he do? He crosses his arm and surprisingly blesses the younger with the blessing of the firstborn rather than the elder. And so once again we see in this faith modeled in death by lineage that in surprising and providential ways God is pleased to use the instruction of the Father to raise up the next generation and to pass on to them the baton of faithfulness. This illustrates, these examples in the text illustrate the normative means, the normal way that God grows His kingdom, if you will. Through families that love and teach their children, the whole counsel of God, sons and daughters of the next generation, can be raised up to teach their sons and daughters. And by a multiplication of generational increase, a great harvest may be reaped if God is gracious into the storehouses of glory. As we see in the text again, verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked 
future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Again, this faith modeled in death and modeled in the acknowledgement of lineage recognized that God's will and purposes are much bigger than what we will experience in our limited window of opportunity. We live in a world that does not confess this. We live in a worldview that says all that really matters is your experience. We are often blind in our values in this nation to what about the future? What does God have planned in the next generation? Brothers and sisters, in strong opposition to this tendency, let us consider the generational call of taking the gospel beyond our own experience and life and proclaiming it to the next generation. Let us take a cue from the saints of old and by faith like Isaac and Jacob, when dying, bless each of our sons and daughters as it were, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith then Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, gave instructions concerning his bones. So here we have these three generations. You have Isaac, then you have Jacob, then you have Joseph. God's purposes are marching forward through history. You think at any tenuous moment where the enemy would have thought, now's a great time to mess everything up. But God used the imprisonment of Joseph to save his people from famine. When they relocated to Goshen, they were just 70 people. But in 400 years, a million plus strong, they would return after the fullness of the Amorites' iniquity was complete to reclaim the land. And it was the testimony of this plan, purpose, and promise of God that was affirmed by each of these covenant head filial family representatives that teach to us a lesson of faith. Faith is bigger than you. God's plan is bigger than you. Faith is trusting, in fact, believing, in fact, that God's plan is bigger than you in your own experience. It is a progressive work that God is accomplishing through history unto His perfect will being accomplished in all events, in all people, according to His plan before the foundation of time. And it is marching through by means of those who confess Him in their call. Sometimes to simply gather your family, fathers, for family worship tonight, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, or whenever you choose to do so. And yes, this is an application and a charge to you. Teach your children. Last night we sat down as a family and I, I asked my sons, what are the most important chapters in the Old Testament that help, understand, help us understand the new? None of them could answer that question right off the top of their head. So I tried to impress upon them three. Psalm 22, Psalm 110, and Daniel 7. And we talked about how those three chapters are keys to understanding the new. Now my charge, my duty, my responsibility is to underscore that truth until one day in the future I can ask my sons and daughters, what are three of the most important chapters in the Old Testament? And they will be able to tell me. That is just one personal example to encourage you to apply this word today. Faith is modeled in these things. The acknowledgement that God uses the instruction of the father, of the parents, through godly lineage to bring the gospel to the next generation. So let us learn from Hebrews 11 and do so.
Finally, burial accommodations. Faith is modeled in the burial accommodations of Joseph specifically. Again, verse 22, by faith. Why did Joseph do this? He did it because he had faith. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Again, Joseph was mindful of an event that would not take place for 400 years. Yet it was so important to him, he valued it so much that he gave specific instructions, when that day comes, make sure and relocate my remains to the place of promise. This is the sole reference to Joseph and his faith that is highlighted in Hebrews 11 to teach us again that the saints of old modeled in death that God's purposes are bigger than them and we ought to acknowledge his great plan. What effect can this have on others? Well, Calvin summarizes it this way. He says that by actions such as these, they sharpen the desire of the people so that they would look more earnestly for the redemption. They sharpen the desire of the people so that they would look more earnestly for their redemption. That is to say, the testimony of Joseph's faith lived on 400 years after his passing because Joshua and Moses and the contingency were carrying his bones to the promised land. Why? They were acknowledging the faith of their forefather who went before that knew beyond a shadow of a doubt based on word and promises that the exodus would take place. Even though 400 years of crushing slavery seemed to argue every moment, every day of their waking lives. Nevertheless, God's word proved true and Moses indeed was relocated. Uh, this was the case with Jacob as well. It's interesting, Genesis 50, verses 4 through 14, we don't have time this morning to cover all these cross-references. They are in your notes, I encourage you to study them this week. Jacob himself was carried by Joseph to Machpelah, the land purchased by Abraham from Ephron the Hittite. When Abraham, you recall, was just a sojourner in the land, the first plot that he could say was his, he purchased from Ephron the Hittite, and he buried his beloved wife, Sarah, in the land of promise. Joseph, upon Jacob's death, took his father, got permission from Pharaoh, and carried his bones, carried his body, into the promised land and buried him in that same plot of ground. Later, some 400 years later, this event was recapitulated. Uh, in Genesis, uh, or Joshua, uh, excuse me, Genesis 50, verses 24 through 26, we see this event taking place. Uh, make sure I get my references right. Uh, also, Exodus 13, verse 19, and Joshua 24, 32. And in this event, we have the record of Joseph's bones being carried into Israel with the Exodus and all of God's people. And where was he buried? And Shechem, a land purchased by Jacob. Thus, we see in, this, in these patriarchal notes in the text in the lineage of the fathers of the faith, that they, in life and in death, affirmed that God's word is true. I mentioned this in passing when we were in Matthew 27. But listen again. In the case of Joseph and of Jacob, it's as if they were anticipating not just relocation to Canaan, but in fact, the dead rising at the sound of Christ's dying voice in Matthew 27. 
What does it say in Matthew 27? That the dead were raised. That the, uh, those who had been saints, who had fallen asleep, were raised. And after Christ was raised, they entered into Jerusalem and appeared to many. Again, I cannot tell you, no one can, who exactly was that was raised from the dead. But isn't it interesting that this relocation of these two forefathers in the faith, in a sense, anticipates this very event. They were looking forward to the promise fulfilled. They were looking forward to resurrection. It has touched my heart so profoundly, even in our own experience. Last year, we lost Stanley Clark to death, and many of you were there at his funeral. I had the great privilege of standing there graveside with one hand on that uh, mahogany casket, and preaching, holding my Bible with the other, and telling everyone that was gathered in the cemetery that within his hands, in that casket, the dead body of Stanley Clark was Jude chapter 1. Verse 24 and following. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before, before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. That is an example, even in our body here, of faith modeled in death. Our brother Stanley will be raised on that final day, and in his hands is a testimony of expectancy for that very thing. It's a secondary note. Some have asked me, do you prefer traditional burial or cremation? Well, looking back at the testimony of those who went before us, I prefer, quote-unquote, traditional burial. Maybe just call it Christian burial. Why? Because it models in death an expectation for God's future plans for the body. And there's something profound about that. Think about that. I wouldn't you know, build any dogmatic structure on that particular point. But it's an example of an application that we see modeled for us in Hebrews 11. In life and death, for the saints of old, no opportunity was wasted to proclaim the glory of God. Praise the Lord. That is powerful indeed. Secondly, this morning, faith modeled in birth. Isn't it fascinating that we move straight from this record of these deaths of saints of old to the record of the faith of a couple of parents? Let me ask you this question. Can you tell me the names of Moses' parents? A show of hands in this room. Let me be honest with you. Prior to my study for this text, I could not have raised my hand, and I see that there's not a hand raised in the room. I, with you, did not know who Moses' parents were before preparing this message. But were they important? What was the fruit of their faith? Wow. You cannot put, you cannot even quantify it, can you? The faith modeled in the decision to have Moses, to bear him by his parents. For your information, Amram and Jochebed. Amram is dad, Jochebed his mom is profound indeed. And we see it referenced in our text today. Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months 
by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We may not know the names or may not have known moments ago the names of Moses' parents, but how important in the plan of redemptive history was their decision to defy the king's edict and to hide this little one in a time when babies were being slaughtered and it was illegal to have children. By faith, Moses was born under these conditions. And think of this obedient sacrifice that was embarked upon by his parents. You find it in Exodus 2. They hid him while they could in nooks and crannies of their abode, their hovel, their hut, wherever they lived. They silenced his voice. They shushed his cries so that when they heard the steps of the guard going past or were in fearful of any danger, they might shield their baby son from the wicked tyrants who would just as soon throw him in the Nile because of the command of Pharaoh to destroy all of the children, the male children of the Israelites. So against all odds and in strong faith for three months, They squirrel him away in the corners of their abode. And then a second act of faith, profound indeed. They they create a little ark. They cover it with similar substance to that which waterproofed the ark of Noah. And they place inside the hope for the redemptive future of the people of God. And they set that little ark free in the waters of the Nile. And they trust in faith the sovereign hand of God. And just as God guided Noah and the seed of, the fu- of his future plans safely through the waters of judgment, so he did with Moses. And he arrived in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter who had compassion and raised him as her son. This faith, again, of Amram and Jochebed in their obedient sacrifice to bear a child and to set him free in three months To adoption by providence, if you will, is profound indeed. At the abortion clinic, again, this last week, Philip and I got into conversations with six or eight individuals, and every one of them gave us a number one reason why they thought mothers should be able to kill their babies in the womb, to deny them life. And they all said because of economic hardship. That was the number one thing. Because of economic hardship, because it's difficult and it costs money to raise a child, women should be free to deny life to their children. Think of how that stands in stark opposition to the obedient sacrifice of Amram and Jochebed, who gave birth to a little son in an environment that not only was economically non-viable, but all other circumstances conspired against them. Yet what, were they, what did they do? Out of obedience to God, they brought forth as best they could, trusting in Him, nurtured the Savior, if you will, the Deliverer that God would commission to be His agent to bring justice, mercy, deliverance for the people of God from the clutches of four centuries of tyranny. Wow. Faith modeled in birth. Some of you parents are having children and faith. In a world that seems, yes, in some ways inhospitable to raising children, yet you take that step of faith, to bring forth into this world little ones. Someday, 
God knows. The little ones that you're faithful to bring forth, he may use in profound and mighty ways. People may never know your name. People may never know their name. But they will bring forth, as God is faithful and gracious, mighty works if they raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And by, again, faith model in the birth of Moses, we have an example of how to live in our present day, do we not, saints? Why did Amram and Jochebed do this? Well, they did it because of God. Now, it's interesting. It says they did it because they saw that the child was beautiful. That's interesting language. And at first, we think on a surface reading, this kid is so cute, we're going to deny the guards and just keep this one. But the decision is more profound than that. The idea in the language is goodly. The, the, uh, the child appeared to them. His countenance to them was one of a profound message. That is, the favor and calling of God was reflected in the countenance of their son. This was the beauty, the goodliness of the child that they received. The same language is used to refer to Daniel's friends in Daniel 1.13. It was the favor and calling of God reflected on the countenance of the youth that gave them favor and influence and God used in profound ways in Babylon. The same language is used of Esther. It was the goodliness of God's grace and favor in her that God providentially used once again to intervene and save his people. The same language is used of David in 1 Samuel 16, 12. He, ruddy, handsome, and beautiful to look at, this favor and calling was reflected in the countenance of David. God used him to deliver his people. And this is the idea. It was because they recognized the favor and grace of God in the gift of their son that their faith was stirred to bear this child against all odds and to guard him as best they can and then to trust him to his sovereign hand. And that child went on to be Israel's great deliverer. And finally, they did this in spite of the king. It was an obedient sacrifice because of God's favor in spite of the king. They were not afraid, after all, of the king's edict, it says again in verse 23. They were not afraid of the authority of the state, of the tyrant, of the ruling worldview, of the crushing, oppressive reality of their surroundings. In other words, though all of society conspired to present every compelling reason to reject this child, they obeyed God rather than man. All of society conspired to present every compelling reason to reject this little one, but they obeyed God rather than man. Moms and dads, you can model this faith in welcoming your own children and spiritually reaching the lost as spiritual children. In this time, the midwives, you remember, I don't know if you know their names, Shifra and Pua. Exodus 1.17, verses 20 through 21. They defied the king's edict, and they helped the Hebrews bear their little sons. And they were commended. They were championed by the Lord. The Lord gave them families. He blessed them. Why? Because they modeled faith in these births in spite of the king's edict. This is a powerful example of faith. Faith under difficult conditions. Faith in spite of forces that would conspire against them. Faith in spite of the false authorities that say you, you must not. And faith because the grace of God had been shut abroad in their lives. Finally, this morning, let us consider faith modeled in coming of age. 
this little one began to grow, Moses. By faith, it says, verse 24, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Young people who can understand me this morning, listen. Look to Moses as an example of coming of age, of growing up. Moses grew up in the faith. Moses was tempted by things that could lead him away from God. But Moses followed Jesus. Even though Jesus hadn't come yet. Think of it. Children, young men, young women growing up in this congregation. First of all, identity. Who was he? What made Moses feel important? Well, he could have thought, I'm so important. I'm an adopted prince of Egypt. I can have all the riches I want. I can do almost anything I want. I am a prince, but he refused to be called a prince and not to be identified with his people. He refused to be identified as an elite child of his age. Children, as you grow up, some will tell you, you're so smart, you should study this. You should be an amazing philosopher. You should be an amazing artist. I could see your work in a museum in New York. I could see you as an advocate at the United Nations. I could see you as a political career, being a great orator, leading people, and all these academic pursuits of life. Will you find your identity in those things? Or will you look to Jesus and be willing to suffer with the people of God? This is what Moses did. He could have compromised his identity as an Israelite, Listen, he could have built a pyramid to himself. No doubt, Moses, and it could still stand today. And archaeologists and historians could ooh and ah over that pyramid named Moses in Egypt. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to do? Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Rather than the promise of sin... Moses believed the promise of God. He had to run away for 40 years in the wilderness. But God blessed him, and God used him in mighty ways. And through this, Moses showed his faith. It came with a cost. He embraced the mistreatment of God's people. He was rejected. He had to run away. He was a fugitive. He was no doubt mocked and received the embarrassment, the marginalization, the loneliness of being one of those outcasts, slave people, bad guys. We don't want you around us. But Moses was one who would have cried with the saints, the few, the handful at Jesus' death, my Lord and my God, even while the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the entire Sanhedrin mocked and derided him. How could Moses do this? How could Abraham do this? The answer again is in the text. How could Moses leave a successful life of a ruler of Egypt with wealth and promise and influence and power and architecture and lands conquered, conquered nations and empires? How could he leave it all? He could do so because he considered the reproach of Christ, verse 26, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to 
the reward. Christ Jesus was Moses' reward. He was looking to the Messiah to come, and he knew none of Egypt's boastfulness and riches and power and influence could ever compare. Moses treasured the gospel more than any other worldly thing. And this is why he joins the testimony of faith with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, again Amram, Jochebed, and then Moses. And we see his faith modeled even in his coming of age. And so, saints, we have in our text today a testimony of faith from cradle to grave. In whatever life circumstance we find ourselves, may the Holy Spirit again inspire us with the faith to have the faith modeled by saints of old in every stage of life as we look to Christ. This morning is Communion Sunday. And in a moment, we will partake together if you are a believer in this room. In these elements, we, like Moses, look to Christ. We look beyond the treasures, the temptations, the riches of what this world has to offer, and we consider how precious was the spilled blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing compares to the riches represented at this table today. If we consider what is represented in this meal today, greater wealth, greater riches, greater success than anything this world could offer or boast, we are learning the lessons of Hebrews chapter 11, and we are looking to Christ. And that faith, as the Holy Spirit uses the means of this meal, this preached word, your time in worship, on, in your families, all of that as He uses those means together to stir within you that faith, you will, as it were, join the long line of those who have testified to the power of the gospel stronger than, and bigger than their life, stronger and bigger than death, and we will all be raised one day and we will celebrate this feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is our future. That is our future. Hang on to the Scriptures. Hang on to Hebrews chapter 11, wherever you are in your life this day, and consider what we have meditated on as you partake in this meal. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we're so thankful for what you have provided us this day. In your word, by the examples of the saints of old, and in communion this day. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the preciousness of the work of Christ our Savior and Lord. And let us consider what's represented here, the greater reward, the greatest of which none can compare. Bless our time together, equip and encourage your saints, comfort the afflicted, and move us, exhort us, and equip us to proclaim the gospel and to testify to faith wherever you have called us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.